How about we pray? Father, it's week 11, we're tired. We pray that you'll give us the attention and the energy to stay focused as we study your word now. Uh, and that more than just hearing it, unlike Israel, we will understand it uh, and let it change and shape the way that we live our lives for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in the 1950s, a man named Michael Young coined a term that you might have heard, meritocracy. Now, the idea is what it sounds like. It described a way of doing society such that the wealth and the power were given to those who did the hard work, the ones that had earned it. And then the idea really behind it was that those who received the privileged positions or the privileged circumstances would be the ones that deserved it rather than just inheriting them from family or getting them because of mates and, and who you knew. Uh, but of course, what was supposed to be a mechanism to restore fairness um, didn't quite do what it was supposed to do. Uh, because as social theories go, it's not a very good one. Uh, because there are some things that some people will never be able to do, no matter how much they try. The theory was that as, much, as long as you worked hard, you could get to the top. But anybody who's seen an episode of The Voice will realise that there is no amount of singing lessons that some people can receive that is going to change them. We're all kind of limited by our natural abilities. For example, I will never be able to be a mother. No matter how hard I try, I will never be able to give birth to a child. But even though that's the case, and the kind of concept of a meritocracy is a bit dud, uh, the notion of merit is deeply entrenched in our thinking and in our society. See, the reason that you are sitting in this room today is because you sat an exam or a set of exams and you qualified to do the course that you are currently studying. Some of you are sitting in this room today because you sat that series of exams and you didn't qualify for UCID. That's my sick burn for the day. Too, too close to the bone, or I'm sorry. <laughs> For many of you, the amount of money you have in your bank account, which talking to some of you earlier today is not much, but the amount of money that you have is because you worked for it in that part-time job when you should have been studying. Uh, the reality is that for all of you, your expectation is that the more you study, the better you will do, which means the better the job you get when you graduate. You have been trained ever since your first spelling test in kindergarten to think in terms of merit. Now, don't mishear me, it's not a bad thing, so you don't have to go home to your Asian mum and say, guess what I've been learning at EOC. <laughs> Being taught to work hard to achieve is a fantastic principle to live by. But the one place where this attitude will completely shipwreck you is in matters of salvation. Because of all of the things of value that you can set your heart upon, by far the greatest is the salvation of your soul, isn't it? And yet, out of all of the good things that you could work hard for and earn by merit, whether it's family or education or lifestyle or health, you can think bigger, political influence, social change, eliminating poverty and disease, of all of the things that you could set your sights on, the greatest thing that you could possess and achieve is the one thing that you cannot earn. And that messes with our minds. We've been taught to think in terms of merit. And so what it does is it messes with our pride. And it's not just because we're getting something so good for so little, but because other people are getting something so good for so little while we're busting our guts out to get it. We've all been there, haven't we? 
you've been working really hard for something and somebody just kind of swoops on in and gets it without lifting a finger. It's too easy. It's not fair. So what we're going to see today in today's passage is that the Christian gospel is not and never has been based on merit. The thing that it offers you, salvation, is something that you cannot earn. And for those of us who think that we can earn it, it's going to challenge our pride. But if we let it, and we let it move us to humility, we will receive, not earn, but receive the greatest and most desirable treasure there is in the world. And that's the righteousness of God. So let's begin. Let's begin at point one. Israel's failure explained. This is on your outlines there. When we talk about Israel's failure, we sort of need some context. Now, remember the question that Paul has been asking since the beginning of chapter nine. What's he been asking? Why haven't the Jews believed the gospel? The promised Messiah has come. The gospel has been proclaimed to them. But most of the Jews say no. And so last week we saw Paul explain why from God's point of view. And what we saw was that the reason the Jews hadn't believed was because of God. God had not chosen them to believe. And what God does is he withholds his salvation from them while he grants it to all of the Gentiles so that the greatness of his mercy might be revealed to the whole of the world. And so in last week's passage, particularly in those last verses, in verses 25 to 29, what we're left with is a picture of this massive influx of the Gentiles coming to Christ, while only a remnant of the Jews are believing. Now this week we pick up that same picture, but instead of looking at it from God's perspective, we're actually going to look at it from man's perspective. And what Paul is going to try and do is explain why Israel has failed to receive God's salvation. And he's going to say that while it is true that God chooses people to be saved, Paul maintains that they are still responsible. And he throws it back on the Jews and he says they are accountable for their unbelief. And here's why. So he begins in verse 30. This is what he says. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So he pictures it as a race. And the goal of that race is righteousness, that quality by which we can stand before God on Judgment Day and be declared innocent and so be welcomed into his kingdom. And that's the goal. And Israel has been pursuing that goal with a passion. They get up early, they're hitting the ACU gym, they're eating the raw eggs, they're doing all the weird things that are going to give them the edge to get across that line. And what happens is that they never cross the finish line. What happens is they trip on a stumbling stone on the track. And who wins the race? Well, it's the Gentiles. And they didn't even know they were competing. They hadn't been training. They didn't even know they were on a running track. And yet they're the ones who cross the finish line and win the prize. Now, example from modern history. How many of you guys know who Stephen Bradbury is? Throw a line up. Uh, There should be a picture of him up there. Um, bit of a goofball. Um, I'm surprised that a lot of you guys know he must be very, very famous for this very reason, right? 2002 this happened, so you guys were all in nappies still. 
He was the first Australian to win a gold medal at the Winter Olympic Games. And so he, Stephen Bradbury, is the Gentile in this passage, okay? Let me explain why. Bradbury in the quarterfinal is at the back of the pack, flukes his way into the semi-finals through a disqualification of the winner. Semi-final, he's coming last again, and through another fluke, he comes first because everyone else in the race crashes. All right? So he's in the finals. He, he doesn't belong there. He's old. He's at the end of the career. Everybody knows he doesn't belong there. He knows that he doesn't belong there. Even he knows he's coming last. And so it's him and four of the fastest skaters in the world. And just as an aside, this is really cool. The American contestant was called Apollo Ono. Like, what a name, Apollo Ono. Like, name that your first child, yeah? Anyway, so Stephen Bradbury, he's lagging behind the whole race until the last... 50 meters, so 950 meters, it's all but done, and there's a four car pile up just before the finish line. And you can kind of imagine the commentary, right? Oh no, Apollo, oh no, is down, oh no. <laughs> I don't know, I just think it's really ridiculous. And Bradbury, what happens is he sails across the finish line and gets the gold when nobody thought that was ever going to happen. Now you can imagine the world champion Apollo Ono at this point, what he's thinking as he looks up from the ice. And I don't have it for you, but there's this classic picture where he's just on the ground looking up as Stephen Bradbury's cruising along going, yeah baby. <laughs> you know what he's thinking? You filthy Gentile. <laughs> I deserved that. You don't deserve that. And as we kind of look at his response, it makes so much sense to our merit-based thinking, doesn't it? Because Apollo Ono deserved it. But his response was wrong, as far as the gospel is concerned. Because remember, the gospel does not operate on merit. And so no matter how hard the Jews worked, they would not cross the finish line. They would always crash. Why? Well, Paul tells us there in verse 32, what does he say? It's because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They were trying to earn their righteousness but what have we seen earlier in Romans chapter 3, verse 20? By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so the Jews, they were pursuing an impossible task in an impossible way, and so they failed to finish the race. And so Paul says there in verse 20, 32 again, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And what he's doing here is he's drawing on an image that God made in a prophecy hundreds of years ago against a corrupt Israel. If you want the verse reference, and it's not in your Bible, it's Isaiah 28 verse 16. And he quotes it in verse 33 here. What does he say? Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, no prizes for who the stumbling stone is. Right? He's talking about Jesus. But why is he talking about Jesus? What is it about Jesus that makes him a stumbling stone? Well, what Paul does is he explains to us exactly why that's the case in the next four verses. Have a look there from chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God... And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So what's happened here is that Israel has made a wrong turn. They are so zealous to attain righteousness that they completely ignore how God is actually bringing it about. They're blinded by their own zeal. 
What do they do? Well, verse 3, they're ignorant of God's righteousness and they seek to establish their own. So you can see here again, they're pursuing righteousness by works rather than by faith. Now, why is this a problem? Because I would have thought, frankly, that if you're seeking to please God by doing righteous works, that's a good thing, right? Well, the reason it's a problem is verse 4. Have a look there again. You notice the 4 there. It's explaining what he's just said before. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, a question for you. Why is this the problem? What does it mean that Christ is the end of the law? I'll give you a moment with the person next to you to kind of throw some ideas around. Bring us back. So, um, does anyone have a suggestion? They're willing to share. Ben does. What? <laughs> he just nodded. I was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think you can understand this one of two ways, and it all depends on how you understand the word "end." Because it can mean two different things, can't it? On the one hand, end as in conclusion or termination. The end of semester is coming very soon. Or it can mean the end as in the goal or purpose or fulfilment. The end of my degree is my certificate, my diploma, my qualification. And it's this fulfilment idea that Paul is picking up here. So we could reword the, the verse and say Christ is the fulfilment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, or the goal, or, or the intended purpose. And so it's not that Christ terminates the law. He, he doesn't end it that way and make the pursuit of it pointless, therefore. Because if you go back to verse 32, Israel isn't actually critiqued for pursuing a law that leads to righteousness. They're critiqued for how they pursue it, by works and not by faith. And the reason they're pursuing it wrong is because they haven't understood that the law was never meant to be fulfilled by them. That was never God's intention. It was meant to be fulfilled by Christ. He was the one who, through his perfect obedience, would be perfectly righteous. And so it's through Christ that righteousness is attained. But the mistake Israel made was to ignore God's provision of righteousness in Christ. And what they did is they doggedly chose to try and establish their own. And you really need to get this point because this, this, it's, this is what the chapter hinges on. Because they ignored God's provision of righteousness, their good deeds are actually offensive to God. Not because of the deeds themselves, but because of why they did them. And you see it there in verse 3. Because they were seeking to establish their own righteousness, they don't submit to God's righteousness. And that submit language is actually moral language. 
their works-based mentality, that merit attitude to salvation, even though it looked pious and right on the outside, actually, in reality, it was an act of rebellion because it refused to accept God's means of salvation. And that is why Jesus is the stumbling stone. Because he forces us to acknowledge that salvation comes to us on God's terms and not our own. Every other world religion answers the question, what must I do to be saved the same way? Work harder, be better. If you're a Muslim, it's pray three to five times a day. If you're a Catholic, it's go to confession, do penance, acts of charity. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, it's go door knocking, evangelize. All of these things that you've just got to tick off, you've got to work harder, be better, make sure that you make the grade, and if you merit it, you're saved. It is man trying to get to God in the way that man thinks is best. But God comes to us in Christ and says, that is not how you'll please me. In fact, that's the best way to offend me, by ignoring the righteousness I offer you and trying to establish your own. So that begs the question then for us, doesn't it? How is it that we attain God's righteousness? Because if there is nothing that we can do to earn it, how do we get it? Well, the answer that Paul gives us is that we receive it as a gift by faith. Now, have a look there at verse 5. We're going to the next section here. Paul tells us that the scripture talks about two types of righteousness. And that would have come as a surprise to Israel because they thought that there was only one. Righteousness by works of the law. But Paul says, no, actually there's two. Uh, Look at what the scripture says. So he begins with verse 5 and he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. So that's righteousness number one. And here's a quote from Leviticus 18 verse 5. Your Bibles might not say that. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So that's the first righteousness. But we already know that's not only not possible, but it's also offensive to God. And so that means that there's only one way left to us. Verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. And again, Paul here is quoting scripture. Uh, He actually draws a number of quotes into these kind of verses in 6 to 8. Uh, They both come from Deuteronomy and they both come from a moment in Israel's history where God is about to bring them into the promised land. Remember, this is the type of salvation forever. You see it in our Hebrews Bible studies, that promised rest, that promised homeland they're looking for. This is the same pattern. And the first one, the first quote that he uses is in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. And I've got it up on the screen there for you. You can have a look. Listen to what it says. Do not say in your heart, and, and that's the quote, that's the whole of the quote, but it's, it's keying us to be thinking about what happens next. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord has thrust them out before you, that is the nations in the promised land that he's going to help them conquer, don't say it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. A bit later on, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. And so already what, what Paul is trying to shape in our minds is, is an expectation um, that God's salvation does not come to us on the basis of our righteous deeds. But then he, he takes the second quote, this time from Deuteronomy 30, also up on the screen, and he basically mashes them together in Romans. And this is what he says uh, in Deuteronomy 30. 
For this command that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven, you're starting to see the parallels here, that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. And then the next slide, neither is it beyond the sea. So he uses abyss here, but it's sort of the same language, that you should say, who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, the point that Moses is making in the original context is that the commandments that Israel needs to obey to remain in the promised land once they take it have been made known to them. They don't need to send out search parties all over the place to find out what God wants of them. It is near them. They know it. They can do it. And Paul is using this quote to make the same point about the gospel. You don't need to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down and find out that secret message of the gospel because he's already come down from heaven as a man. You don't need to descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, because God has already done that. And in doing so, in raising Christ from the dead, he is saying that Jesus is the Christ. This is the one through whom my salvation will come. But what does it say? And this is verse 8. It says that the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Well, how is it near? Well, he explains in verses 9 to 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so you want to know how to attain God's righteousness and so be saved? Well, this is how. You place your faith in Jesus. Seems too simple, doesn't it? Seems too pedestrian. Oh yeah, I've heard that. I've grown up in church. But there it is. That's how you attain the righteousness of God. And don't be thrown by that heart and mouth thing. Paul is not advocating for some sort of mysterious two-step process to being saved, as if it's not enough to place your faith in Christ. You've then got to somehow verbally speak it like a magic spell for it to lock in and, and set. Uh, we know that the two are the same thing. Because confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead are the one and the same thing. If you remember all the way back to Romans chapter 1 verse 4, we see that God has made Jesus Lord of all by raising him from the dead. And so what Paul is calling us to do here is to accept Jesus' lordship to be true. And if we do that, here is his guarantee. He gives it to us in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, will not be put to shame. You won't stumble over the stumbling stone. You won't crash on the ice. Doesn't matter if you're the fastest or the slowest. Doesn't matter if you're the most law-abiding, upstanding citizen. Doesn't matter if you're the most despicable, unrighteous sinner the world has ever seen. Because, verse 12 there, have a look, he is the same Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So no matter who you are, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because it is through Christ that righteousness comes. And that is why Israel failed. Because rather than placing their faith in Christ, they stumbled over him. And they failed to attain the righteousness that they so desperately desired. I just want you to think on that for a moment. What a tragedy what an absolute tragedy. They knew the goal, but they didn't get there. 
because of their pride and unbelief. Now, I know who I'm speaking to in this room. I know that you're on board with this message. What a tragedy it would be if we fell back into a works-based mentality that made us think we had to please God because we were sinful rather than rely on Christ who has already made us holy. That's the first point. Let's have a look at the second point. It'll be a bit shorter than the first. Israel's failure is not only explained in this chapter, it's declared to be inexcusable. And the thing to get in all of this is that it was not an innocent mistake on the part of Israel. It wasn't just a lack of knowledge. Oh, I didn't know that was the rule. I'm sorry. Can you wave my ticket? Sure, I, I won't make you pay the fine. It's actually a refusal to submit to God's righteousness. Now, I went to Officeworks earlier this week, uh, and because I'm trying to streamline my life, I thought, I know, I'll run to Officeworks, buy the thing, and then I'll walk home. You know, I'll do the, the double whammy. I'll get a task off and I'll actually be fit. But one problem when you do that, when you run, you can't run with a bag. So I've got to get rid of my phone, I've got to get rid of my wallet. So I took my debit card and I put it in my pocket. Now, this is not going where you think it's going, okay? As I'm doing that, Beth, my wife, says to me, Matt, are you sure you don't want to take my card as well? Because don't you remember all the times your card hasn't worked because you forgot the pin? And I'm like, thank you, no thank you, pay pass, I won't need a pin. So I run to Officeworks, the card is safe, everything is good. I get there, I find the thing, I buy it, put the card down, beep, and it says, please insert pin. My failure at that point was not due to ignorance, was it? This had happened before to me at Officeworks. I was being stubborn. And what Paul is doing in this section is demonstrating to us that Israel's failure was not somebody else's fault. God is not hiding around a corner waiting to trip them up. You can imagine that, right? Like it's the city to surf. And a guy in the crowd just throws this stone in front of the, the runners and they all just kind of spill out and crash. God is not like that. As we've already seen, he has been signposting throughout Scripture the way to the finish line. He's been making it known. It is Christ. And yet what is happening is Israel is kind of running along and they see the sign that says salvation that way and they go, no, no, I'm going this way, right? Um, and they basically get off track. And what happens is, City of the Surf, instead of ending up at Bondi, they're in Katoomba somewhere, stuck in the bush, and nobody's there to help them. And that's why Paul says what he says in verses 14 to 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And it goes on. And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Now, my guess is that most of you would have heard those two verses read at a missionary event to kind of stir you up to give generously and to, and to pray lots to put missionaries in the field. Because if we don't send them, then they can't preach, which means unbelievers can't hear, which means they can't believe, which means they can't call on Jesus who saves them. And the thing that has always bothered me about this, whenever they roll out those verses at these missionary events, is that they completely ignore the context of the verse. Now, they're not misusing them. The verses actually tell us a very fundamental theological truth about faith. More on that in a second. But everyone always just seems to conveniently and mysteriously forget that verse 16 comes after verse 15. What does verse 16 say? But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So what Paul is saying is actually the opposite of what our mission agencies are saying. 
Because as far as Israel is concerned, in the first century AD, it's not that we need to send missionaries to them to preach the gospel. It's that they've already been sent and they've been completely ignored. And again, I want to highlight that this is a moral issue. Because look at that verse there. It doesn't just say believe. It says that they didn't obey. Those two words are in parallel. And so what that means is that if you hear the gospel, which you're hearing today in this talk, that it is only by faith in the Lord Jesus that you could be made righteous and so be saved. If you hear that gospel and then you choose to ignore it or choose not to believe it, then you are disobeying God. And so if you aren't a Christian here today and you, like Israel, are convinced that you need to be right with God, the challenge for you is to not make the same willful and inexcusable error that Israel did. You can't be good enough for God. Our human inclinations, they'll tell us, I've got to make things better. Jesus, come back and find me in three months. I'll show myself to be worthy then. But not realizing that no amount of good works or well-intentioned plans can ever appease God's anger at your sin. Not realizing that the refusal to accept God's free gift of righteousness actually compounds your sin. Far better to place your faith in Jesus and enjoy the riches that he bestows on all who call on him. As if you're not a Christian, if you're a Christian today, you have a different challenge. The challenge is actually in verse 17. Have a look at it. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, the mission agencies might rile me up because they never remember the context, but they are making a legitimate point with these verses, aren't they? Because people don't come to faith unless they hear the word of Christ. Hearing leads to faith. It's one of the most basic and important tenets of the Christian faith. Now, you've heard that quote, go and preach the gospel in all the world and if necessary, use words. You've heard that one before, right? It's crap. Preaching the gospel always needs words. Living a good life isn't going to make somebody fall on their knees in repentance. It might help, might give you a bit of street cred, but it's the word of Christ that saves. And so if you, if you are sincere in your faith and you believe that Jesus is the only way to God and yet you are not proclaiming that word, then you've got to ask yourself the question, what's gone wrong? EOC's mission statement. It's up on the screen. I should have made you recite it. What does it say? Prayerfully proclaiming Jesus Christ at ACU North Sydney to make and mature disciples of Jesus. Do you notice the logic in the mission statement? The proclaiming of Jesus naturally leads to the following of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, even in week 11 on campus, how will you spend your time on campus? Most of you have another three years, I think, in your degree. I'm leaving at the end of the year. It's really sad for all of us. More sad for you than me, I know. You can, you can stop crying. It's, it's going to be okay. If I came back and visited you guys in three years, right, what would I hear if I listened on campus? Would I hear the good news being preached? Or would I hear silence? We've all worked really hard this year to make sure that EOC knows that this is what we're on about. That is the word of Christ proclaimed that changes hearts and brings people from death to life. 
Faith only comes through the hearing of the word of Christ. So I want to encourage you, going on into next year, as you get a whole bunch of first years who come in and join the group, because you'll all be at O-Week, and you'll all be walking up to people, trying to catch as many Christians and draw as many people into the group as possible. What is the culture you will pass on? Will it be this? Or will it just be that this is a Christian social club? We have Bible studies, we eat food, we, we look at the text, but we, we don't really care about the souls of those around us. That's the principle, and that's the challenge for you guys. And that principle is so important to grasp, because it's the principle that motivates Paul's next question in verse 18. He asks, have they not heard? And he answers, indeed they have. And here he quotes Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. The gospel, Paul says, has gone out to the ends of the earth. And you've got to remember that in biblical terminology, that phrase, ends of the earth, is always used to encompass not just Israel, but the Gentile nations that surround them. And in quoting this verse, what Paul is saying is, if the message which started in Jerusalem, the heartland of Jewish territory, has gone out and as far as the Gentiles, then it most certainly has gone to the Jews. They have heard it. Now, because of time, I'm not going um, to spend any time in verses 19 to 21, but for those of you who freak out, you need to know they're making the same point. Israel is answerable for their rejection of the gospel. And it's in light of that, I want to make one final warning against making the same mistake as we wrap up. I'm talking to all of us now, whether you're a believer, whether you aren't, the tendency and the temptation you will have is to always move back to a works-based righteousness. We just can't throw the merit attitude, the mentality. It's just there. And what we'll try and do is we'll try and present ourselves righteous before God, clothed in our own righteousness. But what the Bible calls us to do is place our faith in Jesus and know that our sin, past, present, future, the small ones, the big ones, all of our sin is covered, not by our own righteousness, because that's not possible, but by the righteousness that Jesus gives us. Brothers and sisters, we've got to stop striving. It will only end in bitterness and disappointment. And you will keep stumbling. The finish line will always elude you. The ice will always come up to meet you. And what will happen is, if we stay in that mentality, we will never have any certainty. We will never have any peace. Paul tells us there are two ways to pursue righteousness. And only one of them works, and it's not works. And so my plea to you is, do not stumble over the stumbling stone. You like that one, Josh? Yeah, you did. Yeah. You can have a signed copy later if you want. Do not stumble over the stumbling stone. Rhyming or not, wordplay or not, you will not get there by works. Do not let your pride and do not let your misguided ideas of what you think God does and doesn't want get in the way of doing what he tells you will please him. And it's not deeds. It's your faith. It's your decision to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And it's Him that I'm going to follow. And it's His righteousness that I'm going to claim as my own because it's the only way to be saved. I'm going to pray.
Father in heaven, thank you so much that you sent Jesus, the end of the law, to rescue us from our own prideful and sinful striving and give us the thing that we so desperately needed but could never earn. And pray for all of us here, we will never forget this so foundational truth in your Christian gospel. And instead, in faith, we all will be calling on the name of the Lord until he returns or calls us home. We thank you for him and it's in his name we pray. Amen.